Oh, my soul, you are not alone. You are not alone. It's a great promise there. A promise we can sink our teeth into. Sink our teeth into and begin to digest and allow it to penetrate the, the, the fabrics of our soul. Uh, one that we can grab hold of, hoping and rejoicing. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and uh, certainly glad you guys are here. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, if you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to hit a, a quick pause in our series within the uh, letter to the Ephesian church, and uh, today we're going to focus specifically on uh, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Uh, that's the, the mini-series. It's a very long miniseries <laughs> that I've been in for the past year now. And, uh, but today we are gaining ground. We have been gaining ground. And today we're going to look at the, the letter to the church, Philadelphia. Church in Philadelphia. We've covered uh, in our time within this text, we've covered uh, the letter to the church of Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus is the, it's the loveless church. And then we cover the, the letter to the church of Smyrna, which is the persecuted church. And then there's Pergamum, which is the compromising church. Even on through to, we've got Thyatira and then Sardis. Thyatira was the corrupt church. Sardis is the dead church. And today we're going to find out the type of church that Philadelphia is uh, being, being stated to be. So let's take some time. i like to just kind of open up, just kind of reading the text uh, after we read the text, we'll pray, and then we're going to dive into it, okay? So if you're in Revelation, it's just, you should uh, be in chapter 3 specifically, and we're going to look at, again, this letter to the church in Philadelphia. I'm going to read it aloud, and you just follow along. Follow along. Verse 7 says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word. You have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. I'm going to say that one more time. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we can gather and uh, 
spend some time in your word. Would you help me this morning? Um, communicate your truth to your people. Um, Father, where, where, where I'm ignorant, Lord, would you be my wisdom? Where I'm weak, might you be my strength this morning? I pray, God, that your people would have, have ears to hear and eyes to see what you are communicating through this letter. Help us, God, as we, as we, as we hear your word. Help us to not just be hearer, hearers, but to, to cling to it and to appropriate and be doers. May it shape us, God. May it sharpen us. Help us to be settled in it. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, no doubt, without a doubt, you know that there are some concepts within Revelation that can be very, very, very difficult to explain. And everybody's nodding their head. Absolutely. They, they, they can just be difficult to, to explain. Whether it's, you know, the, the tribulation, whether or not we should look at the tribulation through a pre-trib or post-trib lens, be it the millennial uh, reign of Christ, and whether it's literal or figurative, or whether or not it's in the future or now, these are, these, these are difficult concepts to uh, understand. And, you know, these, these concepts in and of themselves, they really have produced a massive amount of scholarly debate. Folks are still debating about it. And this is good debate. And I think these are maybe some, 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 some ideas that you should, you know, press into and consider. Um, but I think what's crystal clear within the book of Revelation is that God is sovereign and he is king. All right? So when you're reading through it, if you don't come away with that, you've missed it. Right? <laughs> don't miss that. God is sovereign and he is king. But it also says that Jesus is coming again. He's coming again physically, visibly, and bodily. And we don't just stop there. Satan is defeated. Keep reading in the book, right? Satan is defeated. Death is defeated. Death is conquered. We also see that uh, there's a new creation. Think about that. A new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. And when you're reading through the book of Revelation, you've got these great truths that just emerge from the text, emerges from the pages in really rich ways. And these truths, they provide nourishment to weary souls, comfort to worn hearts, and they're, 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 they're designed to lift our eyes to the glories of Christ and his supremacy in all things, over all, over all things. You can't miss that when you read Revelation. And today in our letter to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus gives a, a hearty approval, hearty approval to the faithfulness of this church. Uh, we were just in the, the letter to the church of Sardis. They were a dead church. He had nothing. Jesus had nothing uh, to commend them in. Obviously, certainly he told them, you know, if you have an ear, you should hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, but again, there's, there's, there's definitely a, 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 like a contrast, right? You've got a, a church that's been faithful. The contrast is you've got a church that's dead, there is no faithfulness. And today we're going to press into that letter. Um, and when you think about how Jesus commends this church, uh, 
his measure for, for success is much different than ours. His measure for faithfulness, it's, it's, it's different from ours. Uh, what, we, what we find in this particular letter is that this is a, a small church. They have very little cultural uh, and political influence. But this is, a, this is a church that demonstrates gospel resolve. They demonstrate gospel resolve. And, and, and it prompts our Lord to give this unqualified praise of them. This is not a perfect church. You can search the scriptures. You'll find that there is, there is no perfect church. You can look around, right? And find, you're like, yep, not perfect, right? Sign me up. I'm not there, right? Not a perfect church at all. This is also a church that probably doesn't have booming programs. This is probably a church that it's not down with the, the latest and slickest trends. But Jesus says that this is a church that's remained faithful. They have remained faithful, and this is an encouraging statement from our Lord. So in our time this morning, I want to make three observations, three observations about faithfulness that's modeled by the Philippian church. There we go. Three observations about faithfulness that's modeled by this church, and uh, in those observations, we want to look at how, how faithfulness is actually cultivated within the Christian life. Let's look at how it's cultivated. We see our first observation in, first, in verse 7. It's taken from verse 7. We see the self-description of Jesus. And throughout the seven letters, uh, th this, is, this is common. Jesus intros with a self-description of himself. And here in verse 7, he says, I am the, the holy one, the true one. I have the key of David, I open with what, what no one will shut, and I shut what no one will open. And this, this self-description, in each context, it's weighty, very, very, very weighty is for those who are actually receiving it, because it provides this, this identity. It provides an ID for, for the person who's actually speaking to them. And this, this identity that, that, that's, that's just kind of unfolding from this self-description, self it's, it's designed to shape its hearers to the core of their beings. It's, it's designed to shape them in really unique ways. And our first observation is that the faithfulness of the Philadelphian church, it's shaped by Christology. It's shaped by a healthy and robust understanding of who Jesus is. Faithfulness, as a follower of Jesus, is tethered to that. It's attached to that. Now, now in stating this, and I know this implies that while there is healthy, rich, robust, um, biblically faithful understanding of who Christ is, it also implies that there is unhealthy, right, impoverished, Biblically unfaithful guesstimations. Mind you, I said guesstimations of who Jesus is. And this, this, this self-description, um, it, it's not exhaustive, but there are some features here that, that help to shape the understanding of who Jesus is for his audience, this church as they're receiving them. This self-description, it, 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 it intros with the deity of Jesus, the deity of Christ. He is the Holy One. And let's just kind of 
work through your biblical Rolodex, right? The Holy One, that's, that's, a, that's a title that's ascribed to, to Yahweh, but it's being applied to Jesus. But also what we know about like God's holiness is that throughout Scripture and certainly within the book of Revelation, the holiness of God is the subject of great angelic praise. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is holy. And these words come from him, but it doesn't stop there. He's also the true one. And this is kind of interesting because as they're receiving this, uh, as in, the, in the Hebrew mind, it means that he's faithful and trustworthy. This Jesus, who is holy, he's also true. He's faithful and he's trustworthy. And, and what he says as the faithful and trustworthy one, it is, it, it, it's undeniable in its accuracy. But the self-description doesn't stop there because it's fourfold. Here's the third aspect. He's the one who has the key of David. And this is a statement that's actually taken from Isaiah 22. And this is within Isaiah 22, uh, specifically verse 22. It's speaking to uh, a, a dude by the name, a dude. <laughs> A brother by the name of Eliakim, and he serves as a type of Messiah. But here's the thing with Eliakim. He's been given authority. If you follow the story in Isaiah 22, he's been given authority to control who's admitted and excluded from the presence of the king. And again, this is coming. These are the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David. Here's the fourth aspect of this, this self-description. He opens and no one shuts and shuts what no one opens. He, he actively opens the door of the kingdom. And he can shut people out. And that, that's kind of an interesting way to look at Jesus. Right? Wait a second. He actively opens and he can shut people out. These words are coming from the Holy One, the True One. He's the God-man. He's deserving of our confidence. He's certainly deserving of their confidence as well. He's been given authority to rule from the throne of David. His kingdom has no end. They, they need to know who Jesus is. And we need to know who Jesus is. And I believe that understanding who Jesus is, as proclaimed in the scripture, plays a critical role to shaping us, plays a critical role in shaping us. And, and, and really, when we think about the, the way that this letter intros, the way that it opens up, it, it, serves, it serves as an example for us. Uh, because if we're to be found faithful, we need to have a, a healthy understanding of who Jesus is. But also, we, we need to allow these rich truths regarding who the risen Lord is to sink deep within us. And not only sink deep within us, to define us and direct us. Right? We need to have that, that, that healthy, robust understanding of who Jesus is. That's our first observation. Faithfulness is shaped by Christology. Here's the second observation. It's going to be found in verses 8 through 10. This is where Jesus reminds the Philadelphian, the Philadelphian church that, hey, I know your situation. I know how you've been hard pressed. And Jesus can say that because he is ever present 
with his people. Think about that this morning. All right. Jesus, even right now, he's ever present with his people. He says to them, picking up in verse eight, I know your works. You corporate have but little power. Yet you corporate have kept my word and not denied my name. Those who persecute you, corporate, will learn that I loved you, corporate. All right? Because you, you guys say, corporate, there you go, you're following me, have kept my word about patient endurance, and I will keep you, oh yeah, and I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. Now, I'm placing this emphasis on the, word, on, on, the, on the term corporate, particularly the corporate nature of Jesus's commendation, because he's not praising their individual faithfulness. He's praising the collective faithfulness of the redeemed community. All right? He's not praising them as individuals. It's more the collective faithfulness of the redeemed community. And our second observation, when we think about the collective faithfulness of the redeemed community, We see that faithfulness in the Philadelphian church, it's sharpened within the context of community. I'm going to unpack this a little bit. Sharpened within the context of community. Jesus commends them for having kept his word and not denied his name, despite being small in size, despite having little power within the culture. They don't have any power politically. They don't have any power economically. There's not much agency and mobility. They're not bossing it in their, in their context. You guys know what, what, know what I mean by bossing it? Some of the millennials are like, yep, bossing it. Like a boss. All right. But they're not, they're not bossing it. All right. They're facing these external hostilities from Jews who've excommunicated them from the synagogue because of their faith in Christ. But the question is, so how were they able to have gospel resolve? particularly in the midst of so many obstacles to living out their faith in the culture. How do you have that resolve? When you don't have any mobility, you don't have any agency, you've been excommunicated, you've been marginalized, all of these injustices, right? How do you have that type of resolve within the culture? They have that resolve because they're not doing it on their own. They have that resolve because they are not alone. They're not doing it on their own. They're living out their faith within the context of the redeemed community, which is the church. The redeemed community is this. They're living out their faith within the context of this. The redeemed community, the local church. They don't have a lone ranger Christian mentality that we often have. It's just me and God. No, it's not. He calls you to a family. He calls, you to, he calls you to a people, right? Certainly calls you to himself. They're not, they're not rocking like Frank Sinatra. He had a song, I did it my way. I wanted to say that. So <laughs> They don't have that type of orientation. They realize that through Christ, They've they've been given a new status and a new identity. And this new status, this new identity, this new life, 
it finds its expression within the context of the local church. I'm going to press a little bit more into that. And it's within the local church that they are to be mentored and discipled in the faith. They're to be equipped, sounds familiar, for the work of ministry within the local church. They're to partake of the ordinances. They're to grow in their devotion to Christ, but also in their love for one another. It's here that they devote themselves to the public reading of Scripture. They devote themselves to, to ex exhortation and teaching. It's here that they learn Christ. They learn Christ. Their faithfulness is sharpened within the context of the redeemed community. And this is, just, this is not just perfunctory, being in the same room together, but it's living, actually living in community with one another, all right? Like when your brother or sister calls, answer the phone, <laughs> right? Like, oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not answering that, right? No, no, really, answer the phone, right? Or you initiate that call, right? It's pursuing hospitality. It's pursuing friendship. It's submitting to one another with the gospel as both the means and the goal. The means is the gospel, because we all need it. The goal is the gospel. We submit to one another out of that. And in submitting one another to one another, we submit to Christ. And for the Philadelphian church, as they experience the, they experience the, 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 the onslaught of these, these external hostilities from Jews, from Jews, not jewels. And there's this looming hour of trial. If you turn the page and look at verse, verse 10 specifically, there's a looming hour of trial. And I think this looming hour of trial, that it's, I think it's specific to the historical circumstances of, of that church. Their, their, their faithfulness is being sharpened. Their faithfulness is a community project. It's not individual. It's a community project. And I think if we're to be found faithful where God has placed us, we must allow it to be sharpened within the context of a local church. We've got to be careful not to live out our faith on an island. You've got to be careful not to do that. Again, God calls him to, he calls us to himself, and in calling us to himself, right, he makes us a people his people. And that reality finds its expression right here, right here in the local church. Here's the final observation, and it picks up in, it picks up in verses uh, 11 through 13. And I think there, there's much that emerges from this section that's helpful for us this morning. Uh, we see that faithfulness is shaped by Christology. Faithfulness is sharpened by community. And we see in verse 11, Specifically, that Jesus says that he will return. This is, this is a, a definitive statement here. Not a might, not a maybe. No, he will. I will return. Nothing wishy-washy about that statement. And because I'm, I'm going to return, in light of that, we're to hold fast to what we have so that no one seizes our crown. This is almost, particularly this particular section, this is almost like a coach telling his players who are, the near, who are near the end of a, a gruesome, a grueling competition, a fierce competition to finish strong and not give up. That's where my mind went because I was once a coach. All right? But it's almost as if you know, the, the coach of heaven is saying, look, hey, stay faithful, finish strong, lock in. 
Stay focused. That's what our Lord is doing here. You're almost at the finish line. You're almost at the finish line. Keep your form. Trust, trust the fundamentals. Trust the foundation, the instruction you've received. Lock in. And then in verse 12, there's this bundle of rich promises that come from the heart of our Lord to his bride. And we're going to get to that last observation. But I just want to read verse 12 because it's so rich. It says, the, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write his name on him, the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And this is the final observation that we'll make. You see that faithfulness is shaped by Christology. Faithfulness is sharpened within the context of the redeemed community. But also faithfulness is settled. It's settled in the promises of God. It's settled in the promises of God. And I think what it, what it means for, for faithfulness to be settled in the promises of God is that as it's shaped by the personal work of Jesus and sharpened within the context of the redeemed community, right? And it's also within that context where we're learning Christ, the soil by which it is cultivated, that, that, that serves as the, the rock solid, explicit commitments made by God himself to his people. Those are the promises. The promises are the soil. Right. So and we settle in that soil. And as we settle in that soil, there's some things that are very explicit as it, as it pertains to what God has said explicitly pertaining to his promises. That, that, that's that's the soil. What's so interesting is that. Uh, often when it comes down to considering the, the, the promises of God, um, we tend to have amnesia <laughs> about, these, about these promises. It has nothing to do with age, right? It has more to do with uh, uh, this, this disorder that we all have, right? Now we, just, we, we, we all tend to kind of lean that way. Uh, we tend to forget. We need to be reminded. We certainly need to be reminded. Christ communicates to this church, it's so interesting in light of the promises, that at the close of history, he's coming back. And, and, and I stated early, earlier that, you know, that, that should weigh heavy in our souls. Absolutely. We should marinate on that because the holy one, the true one, the, the one who has the keys of David, he is coming. And he tells us to hold fast. The, 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 the one who is and is to come, he says, look, hold fast. Hold it down. In, in, in my neighborhood, that's what hold fast means. Right? So if you go to the lexicon, that's what it means. Hold it down. Focus in. Focus in. And here's why. Because inherent to my return are several promises and these promises are, are, are situated such to where we, we need to anchor our souls in them. We need to remember them. We need to recite them. We need to celebrate them. And even though we're, we're, we're thousands of miles apart from what's being stated here, roughly 2,000 years 
from this text. If we're to remain faithful, hey, we need to consider these promises. And these promises in and of themselves, they are for us. They're for us. Certainly they were written to a, a them then. But they're for us. They're for us. And, and here's, here, here's some of the promises. All right? I'm not going to walk through all of them, but just something for, something for us to think about this morning. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And unlike, so unlike the, 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 the excommunication that's happening with this church from the, from the Jews in the synagogue, Jesus is saying, look, you are accepted by me. And you're not accepted on, on, on the basis of your ethnicity, your culture. You're not accepted on the basis of um, your, 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 your politics. You're, you're accepted by the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. You're accepted because of that. And that weighs heavy, certainly, for these, these Philadelphian, uh, the Philadelphian believers. That should weigh heavy for us. Jesus doesn't accept us before, because we're Christian. <laughs> we weren't Christians prior to him, right? He doesn't accept us because we've got nice smiles. He doesn't accept us because we've got this banging retirement account, booming retirement account. He accepts us on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. And as recipients of this great grace that, that we've received, specifically the merit of Christ, the work of Christ, we ought to maintain hearts that, that are grateful our hearts ought to rejoice in that, and we ought not to forget it. Here's another promise. He will, he will, in verse 12b specifically, he will never go out of it. So not only will you be made a, a pillar in the temple of my God, but I'm not going to send you out. And it's so interesting because in the Hebrew mind, when they hear this, it conveys the idea of stability and permanence. And this is huge because Philadelphia was a city that was rocked by a major earthquake in AD 17. And <laughs> rather than sleeping in the city, uh, they slept on the outskirts because the tremors were so bad and they happened for so long. Things were unstable, right? Things were unstable. But Jesus is saying, there's stability and permanence within me, all right? The, for us, the, uh, what is it called? The, the market, what is it? The uh, stock market. I couldn't think of that term. <laughs> I don't have stocks in the stock market. Right? The stock market can crash, but there's still stability and permanence within Jesus. For us, there, there will be, could possibly be, I know throughout history there's been changes of guard with the presidency, but there's still stability in, in, in permanence within Jesus. There are certain values that we tend to cling to within this particular society. If, as they are eroding, guess what? There's still stability and permanence within Jesus. All right? There's still stability and permanence in Jesus. Don't forget about that. Here's another, uh, the final promise and we're going to end our time. They're going to be made a pillar in the temple of their God. Uh, he, we're, we're never going to go out of it. And we're going to be given a new name. I want to say this about the new name. It's a metaphor for divine ownership, but it's also a metaphor for uh, the dedication to God of the one who bears this name. So there's divine, divine ownership. 
but also there's this dedication to God for the one who bears this name. There's more to this name. We've got the name of, 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 of Jesus as the name of my God, the name of my God and the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So we're identified with the city of God. And then lastly, they receive my own new name. They receive a new status. They receive a new function. They receive a new change, a change in character. They receive a, a new calling, right? Status, function, calling, change in character, right? These are amazing promises that, that, are, that, are, that are unfolding here. And these are promises that we ought to remember, that we ought to recite, we ought to celebrate. These are rich promises for us, for us to burrow our hearts and our minds and our souls into. And faithfulness, if we're to be found faithful, it's got to be settled in, situated in these promises. The promises that are made by God, his commitment to his people. We ought to settle our hearts in that. There's more certainly that I want to say, but for the sake of uh, navigating through some of the sanctified yawns <laughs> that I'm saying, <laughs> there's certainly more that I want to say. But I think that's, that, that this, is, this is certainly, we can stop here. The, and as we're, as we're stopping here, remember, the, the, we wanted to make some observations about um, uh, what, what the type of faithfulness that was modeled by this Philadelphian church. And in making these observations about what's being modeled, the goal was that hopefully it gives us a paradigm for faithfulness. It's a, it's a community project, right? It's a community project. And hopefully we were able to see by God's grace, we're able to see that it's, it's shaped by a, a, a healthy, a robust understanding of who Christ is and what he's accomplished through the gospel. We need to know who he is. We need to know what he's accomplished because therein lies our identity. I, I, am, I am a Christian who happens to be African-American. My ethnic identity, identity does not usurp nor does it supersede my, my Christian identity. However, as you're giving me the amen, God has graced me with my ethnic identity. He's graced me with that. All right? Amen to my, 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 my brown, my, the, the high amount of melanin that I have that makes my brown very unique. And amen to the lower, the lower amount of melanin that you have that makes your, your melanin unique. Right? Amen to that. All right? But my, my identity is Jesus. It's Jesus. So we, again, we've got a faithfulness has to be shaped by that. It's got to be sharpened within the context of the redeemed community, which is the local church. It's got to be settled in the promises of God. We're going to stop there and let's pray. All right, pray with me. Father, thank you so much for just an opportunity to dive into your word. This is, a, this is a very difficult text to work through. There's so much that's being said. Uh, help us to be able to walk away with knowing and understanding that faithfulness to you is tethered to the person, what we understand and know and appropriate about the person and work of Jesus. Faithfulness to you has to be, it needs to be sharpened within the context of the redeemed community, within the context of the church. But also, God, help us to know that 
Faithfulness to you has to be settled, has to be settled in your promises. We ought to know them. We, we, we ought to, to, to read about them. We ought to, uh, in order to rejoice in them, we, 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 we have to actually have like, knowledge about them. Help us to grow in that, Lord. And help us, God, in our pursuit of you. Help us to be found faithful. Help us to be found faithful. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.